psychiatrist, crime novelist. It seems to be a natural combination, a writer who understands both the workings of the human mind and its capacity for good and evil. Meet this author with me as we talk to another in the long line of distinguished physician authors. You're listening to Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, your host, and with us today is Dr. Charles Atkins from Woodbury, Connecticut. He's a practicing psychiatrist and a member of the clinical faculty of Yale University's Department of Psychiatry and a well-published and wonderful author. He's written for American Medical News. He writes books. We're going to talk to him today. Welcome, Charlie. Hi. How you doing? All right. You have published how many books? I've published five. And how many are novels? Four novels. One is a nonfiction self-help book on bipolar. Do the novels get better with each one? I think so. They get much denser. And where we want to talk some about the process of you know, getting books to the marketplace, for me, a lot of it has been the people I work with that when I first started writing, I'd initially written a first-person, somewhat rambling novel with a hero with bipolar disorder called The Portrait. And I knew that I wanted to get it published, so I started sending it to publishing houses, because I assume that's what you do. And they accept it, and then there's a dump truck filled with money that backs up to your front yard and just deposits the money there. What I found was I got a lot of rejection letters, and I finally went to a convention in New York City that was a mystery writing convention. And the book is a thriller or mystery. And I met a very interesting man named Otto Pinsler, who owned and operated Mysterious Press. And he still owns a couple of mystery bookstores. And what he said was very interesting. He told me that in the 20 years he ran Mysterious Press, they would accept material that didn't have an agent, but they never once published anything. And I remember hearing that thinking, okay, I need to get an agent. And so I shifted my direction from looking for a publisher and really trying to find an agent who could represent me. Let's tell our listeners how you go to find an agent. I know that there are lists of them that you can write to. Yeah, there are lists of agents. There are books. Writer's Digest has books that lists agents. There's Literary Marketplace has lists of agents. A real agent should never charge you a reading fee. They may or may not comment on your work other than to say, thank you very much for sending it, not for me. You want to look for agents who represent people you think you are like or that your work is similar to. You may also want to look at magazines like Writer's Digest, where they will sometimes publish lists of new agents or agents who are actively looking. And there are even agents, believe it or not, who really like to work with doctors. And I think for a number of good reasons. We tend to be driven. We tend to work well with deadlines. And what we do is really interesting to people. Now, getting an agent is not a guarantee of getting your book published. Oh, absolutely not. That's just the first step. No, my first agent was a lovely woman out in L.A. who I'd never met until we actually had my first book deal and we met in New York City. She was extremely helpful. And as a writer, you need to be able to put your ego on the shelf a little bit with your work. She read the portrait. She really loved it. And she made a personal connection, which is something that carries throughout my career. She'd had a couple clients commit suicide. And in the book, my protagonist, seriously contemplates killing himself. She then said to me that if you want me to try and represent this as is, we can try it, but it probably isn't going to get published or will only get published as an experimental novel. 
because I've written the whole thing in first person, present tense. She said, go to your bookshelf, start pulling novels off the bookshelf, and see how people handle prose and dialogue. And sure enough, it was all third person, past tense. He said, she said. So I was like, okay, how do I keep the immediacy of my protagonist's internal monologue where he's going crazy, and I really want the reader to experience that, but to make it more of a recognizable form? And so I completely revoiced the entire novel, keeping his internal monologue first-person present tense, but all the action, everything else, was much more traditional. And that was you know, a lesson you learn at once, you move on. And throughout my process of being a writer, I've had all of these wonderful little snippets of information and advice that I take and I use, and it just gets things better and better. One of my first rejection letters, I had sent out this rambling novel, one that's in a drawer that will never, ever see the light of day. And the only response on this form letter that came back was on the bottom, in pencil, was written, this is very unprofessionally formatted exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. And all I could think about is, you know, only eighth grade girls use three exclamation marks, one right after the other, but he had a point. So I went out, I bought a book on manuscript, manuscript formatting and saw that I had completely done it wrong. It wasn't double-spaced, it didn't have the header the way the header is supposed to be. And so you figure out what you're supposed to do, you learn it, and then in that particular instance, it was a very important piece of the etiquette of how do you submit a book, a novel, a proposal. Because I can tell you that an editor or an agent, they're besieged. The good ones are besieged with people sending them all sorts of stuff. When I visit my agent in New York or even when I visit him down in Florida, when the mail comes, it's delivered in Santa Claus bags and several of them every single day. Now, he's a major agent. He has 10 other agents who work with him. He represents many blockbuster, best-selling novelists like Nora Roberts and Ken Follett and, and even the physicist Stephen Hawking. He has a very dense layer of clients. But he says, you know, this is my job. I'll read anything. But you know that if it doesn't look a particular way, if it doesn't grab him right away, it's not going to go anywhere. And so the work of a writer or a wannabe writer is to really make sure that you do everything to your manuscript or book proposal that will get it through those first few hurdles so that somebody's actually going to read it, take it seriously, consider it, and even if it's not for them, if they see a spark of something, they may offer you some advice that's going to be you know, absolutely priceless. Hold for one second. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Charles Atkins, a psychiatrist and author about the art of writing as compared to the business of publishing. I think also a word needs to be said to our wannabe writer listeners about criticism and working with editors, that criticism is not a bad thing. People take it so personally, but you have to realize that nobody ever writes a book, first draft, that's just fabulous and not a word ever gets changed and it gets published as it is. Exactly. And for me, what I do is, you understand, maybe this is because I'm a shrink, is I know I have an ego, I know I have a certain amount of narcissism, and criticism can hurt. So, you know, with my agent who will do these very intense critiques of my work, 
I'll read it in the evening and I'll put it away and then I'll look at it again in the morning. I need to give myself a little space so that I can get over the how dare you and actually see how 95% of what he's saying is spot on the money. What do you think about self-publishing? You know, sometimes today's world of publishing is really much more a business than it used to be, from what I understand. Most publishing houses are big ones now. They're not going to take a chance often on a new novel. And a lot of good work gets unpublished. So what do you think about self-publishing? Because a lot of people end up doing that. It's becoming increasingly respectable. But I would say even 10 years ago, it was referred to as vanity publishing. Nowadays, I think electronic on-demand publishing is a way that a lot of very good writers can get their work out there. And it sometimes is a way in that you can self-publish something and then promote it and actually have it picked up by a publishing house. At this point, for writers in the beginning part of the career, the major advantage to a publishing house has to do with the distribution. They can get the books out there. They can get them into the bookstores. But even that distinction is becoming less big, that now a lot of the electronic self-publishing houses will get your books placed on all the online booksellers and can even, for a fee, begin getting them with some of the distributors. Now, just because the distributor will carry the book doesn't mean you're going to get shelf space in Barnes & Noble. That's still probably the domain of the publishers. Right, and I think we need to talk about expectations for new writers. Everyone thinks it's going to be money, fame, and Oprah within six months. No. (laughs) What's the reality here? Not the reality. The reality is it's work. It's got to be something that you absolutely love and you feel passionate about. I can tell you that after I got my first book published, I actually got a a two-book deal. But the publisher, which was St. Martin's, did not want my second book. And so it probably wasn't until my fourth manuscript that they accepted a second book to fulfill that contract. They subsequently published my third novel, but it's really, it's work. It's getting the books done, making the book as good as it possibly can be, then it's doing a lot of marketing, such as, you know, sitting around and doing radio interviews and other kinds of interviews, and when you get a a TV interview, you go and do it. And it also takes time, that what I'm finding now And it's very much a part of a process for me, so I have some answers. I don't have certainly all of the answers, and I'm very much learning, is I'm finding that, you know, some of my earlier books, which came out in hardcover, are being re-released in foreign languages. I just got an offer on a two-book deal for what are called mass-market paperbacks, which are those, you know, little airport-style paperback books where they publish them in massive quantities. So these are very important steps for me as a writer. But I've been doing this now for 10 years. So these things are, are happening for me, let's say, over the last two years. What inspires you to do a new story? Is it something that comes from inside of you, or do you read something? Or where do you get your ideas from? When I was writing my second novel, Risk Factor, I was working with a lot of kids, doing a lot of evaluations with adolescents, and seeing a lot of kids getting involved in the legal justice system. And suddenly I found great similarities after I evaluated teenager after teenager, And I said, you know, this is what I want to write about, the process by which a child grows up to become a sociopath. And so I relied a lot on John Bowlby and developmental psychology in this case to really look at how does a child fall off the moral curve? You know, we talk about height and weight and, you know, when they speak and when they crawl, but when do children learn empathy? When do they learn that, you know, going after their baby brother with a knife probably isn't a good thing? 
And how does a child not learn that? And so that really inspired me for that book. And I also buried Frankenstein in there because I thought it was, how do you make a modern monster? In The Prodigy, the new book coming out, I hate to admit it, but I was thinking a lot about Rosemary's Baby. And much of that book was based on doing a certain amount of forensic work and looking at what happens and how does it happen that a dangerous criminal can be released into the community and what happens when that occurs and what's the fallout from that. So these are some of the kinds of things that get me going. Well, Charlie, thank you for being my guest today and sharing your creativity with our listeners. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM157, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMDXM is here for you, doctors who care for your patients. We value your questions and welcome suggestions for future shows. Tell us what you want and what you need. Send your email to xm at reachmd.com, and we truly thank you for listening.